The sermon series we're starting today, you see, are, is called uh, Random Thoughts. The sermons are connected by their randomness, really. That's the, the whole deal there. Uh, these messages are not all from one book of the Bible. We've done that, well, I think about for the last year, we've gone through different, we went through First uh, John, Second John, Third John, and Jude, uh, you know, walked through those. Um, they're not even on the same subject, which we do sometimes. We f- will take a subject and focus on on that and uh, and look at it. And um, But um, here's, the, here's kind of the interesting thing to me. Pastor Kent and Sean don't even know they're part of this series. <laughs> but you see, we're not all preaching on the same thing. Pastor Kent gave me a list of the things he's preaching on in his his sermons. It's not it's not he's going to be preaching three weeks in a row actually. But they're not all following. They do follow each other only because that's the way you know time unfolds. But um, they're kind of independent. So they're they're with me on this whole series of of random thoughts. Uh, for me, on my part anyway, you know, these messages are from thoughts, ideas that came along as I was working on something else. Uh, that's really where they came from. As I was working, sometimes, sometimes there are things and thoughts that came along as I was studying for a different sermon, and I'd be looking at different passages or even that passage and think, oh, uh, and, you know, and I'd, I'd jot down some things that were a little off the subject of what we were looking at then. Some thoughts came from things that I read in the morning. In the morning, I, try, I, I don't try. In the morning, I sit down and I, I read the Bible for a while. And I have a little, I told you before, this year, uh, Jenny, um, Kent, Sarah, Jenny, and I are all going through the same devotional and, and exchanging notes, texts on it and stuff. And So some of the thoughts and ideas come from that. And some, as I read articles or books, um, so we begin random thoughts. Now, one of the things I want you to know, random does not mean unimportant, okay? Realize that. Because something's random, it, it doesn't mean that it's unimportant. There are no unimportant parts of the Bible. Okay? You say, well, what about all those, if you read if the good old King James, all the begats, you know, uh, so-and-so begat so-and-so and so, uh, you know, all of the, the lineages and stuff. I am, I am fully convinced that there are no unimportant parts of the Bible because I don't see the importance of it. just means I need to look and study a little harder and I need to think and pray a, a little bit more. That's all that means. That doesn't mean because it's not making sense to me doesn't mean that it's unimportant. What it means is I need to look and I need to study and I need to say, why did God think it was important that this is in there? You know, so that's that, that's part of it. You know, I, when I'm thinking of random thoughts, uh, you know, I'm thinking as in something that came to mind while I was working on something else. This uh, this series could also be sermons of my distractions. Okay, so let's pray and we'll get into my first distraction for this series. Father, thank you for your touching us and touching us at times in which we're maybe not ready or we're, when we're not. Um, well, when we were thinking of other things, and, and you say, hey, what about this? What a great God you are. What a loving God you are. What a creative God you are. Man, we don't ever want to forget that. I pray that you would help us to see the, not only the importance of your word, but the creativity of a God who has given us his word, his thoughts. A God who allows us to know him intimately. Oh, what a gift. So guide us, and as I shared, no doubt you will give people random thoughts. 
So speak to hearts as only you can do. Transform lives for the glory of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. We're going to start this in Genesis chapter 50. So if you want to get to Genesis chapter 50, if you're using a pew Bible, it's page 48. If you're using uh, some device, it's there. Um, so just find it. Uh, anyway, John, uh, John, in Genesis chapter 50 here, um, God's chosen people, Israel, they were living in Egypt. This was after Jacob and his sons settled there at Pharaoh's invitation. Now, at this point, Joseph was the second command in Egypt. He got to be the second in command uh, through a whole series of, of events. And what happened, his brother sold him into slavery. And as his brother sold him into slavery, um, God was leading. And this is kind of what we're going to look at a little bit as it unfolds here. God was working in his life, and he got to the place where he's second in command of all of Egypt. Well, then a famine comes along, and during that famine, uh, it brought Joseph and his brothers back together. It brought the brothers to Egypt so that they could get some food. And as they were there getting some food, uh, they here they have contact with Joseph, the brother that they sold into slavery over 20 years earlier. But they didn't realize it was Joseph at first. You know, and over 20 years had gone by since when they sold him into slavery, and now here they are before him again. Well, through a series of encounters known to Joseph, unknown to the brothers, and that these encounters in which they were, Joseph was, you know, was interacting with them a little bit more, they come to find out then that their brother Joseph, this Egypt, that this Egyptian official they've been talking with, is really their brother Joseph who they sold into slavery. You want to talk about a moment of panic, I, I, I think, you know, that would probably qualify to be it. You know, this same brother that they betrayed all those years ago was the, was this official that they were dealing with. Well, fences are mended, sort of, kind of. Well, they're not really sure. And the brothers tell their father Jacob about Joseph, probably one of the um, tougher conversations they ever had to have. Dad, remember, we brought you Joseph's coat, said he was dead. We lied. He really wasn't dead. Uh, we, we sold him into slavery. Uh, and by golly, you know, now he's in charge of things in Egypt. Uh, you know, I don't know exactly how that conversation went, but it had to be um, there, there more moments of panic. Uh, well, then uh, what happens is, you know, the entire family relocates to Egypt. Pharaoh invites him, you know, Joseph and, and talks with Pharaoh. Pharaoh invites his whole family to come and live there. And so they did. Well, chapter 50 here then is about 20 years after that even. And Jacob dies, and here Joseph led his family back to the land of Canaan to bury his father in the family tomb. That's the beginning part of chapter 50. Drop down to verse 14. Genesis 50, verse 14. It says, After Joseph buried his father... He returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said to one another, If Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the suffering that we've caused him. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before he died, your father gave a command. Say to Joseph, please forgive your brother's transgressions and their sin, the suffering they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when their message came to him. Then the brothers also came to him, bowed down before him, and said, 
we are your slaves. Now, we're just going to pause there. We're going to pick up again in a minute. But I just want to point out a couple of a few things here. You know, Joseph, his brothers, you know, knew and they admitted that they had done wrong to Joseph. Look what he says, what they said in verse 15. We know for all of this suffering that we have caused him. It brings, they bring it up again in what they say that their father said in verse 17. The suffering that he, they caused you. You know, so it seems that they, that they felt that they felt that they deserved punishment. I mean, that's the way it comes across to me, you know, that, that, it, that they seem to feel that they fully deserve, they fully deserve this punishment from Joseph, that whatever punishment Joseph gives them, that they deserved it. Well, we caused them this suffering. You see, we kind of got this coming. Now, that would amount to retaliation. And just so we're clear, retaliation is never a good thing. It is sometimes the thing we want to do, and it is sometimes, you know, uh, unfortunately, sometimes the thing we do. Retaliation is never a good thing. Now, we're talking about both big and small retaliations. I'm guilty every once in a while. And I'm just going to put this bluntly because, you know, that's my style. I am guilty every once in a while of trying to put people in their place by what I say. And when I say people, you can substitute the word Ginny in there if you want, okay? I am sometimes guilty of trying to get my point across to Ginny simply by what I say. What I am doing sometimes is retaliating for what I think maybe she has said to me or I think maybe what she has done or whatever. So when we're, that's just never a good thing. It's never a good thing to do that. It's it's never a good thing to retaliate. And it can be those little things and it can be big things. You know, it can be, it can be those big things. I have a friend who I had lunch with on Thursday and he just finished a race and it was called the Hatfield and McCoys. That was that was the race. Well, some of you right away that brings up a picture because we you know the Hatfields and McCoys. Uh, whether they were real or not, I don't know. And don't tell me later they were or they weren't. I don't care. That's not the point. The point is, you know, they, 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 these two families who fought and they and they shot each other, you know, and they killed each other. And you kill one, we kill one, and you know they just had this feud. You're a Hatfield, but boom, I'm a McCoy. You know, <laughs> tough luck. Uh, you know, retaliation is it's just never a good thing. That's what it would have been here had Joseph done something, you know, because they felt they deserved it. Joseph wasn't looking for retaliation. Joseph had a, he had an entirely different outlook here. He said, what we, need to, we need to realize, we need to grasp a hold of the reality that, you know, your outlook will cause you, can cause you to misplace your trust. Because, you see, when we retaliate, let me ask you who you're trusting in when you retaliate. Yourself and your actions. You're not trusting in God. If you trusted in God, you wouldn't retaliate. You would you would put your trust in Him, and you would allow Him to unfold His plan. You see. And so when you know you think of your outlook, your outlook can cause you to misplace your trust. But look at here. You know, Joseph was grieved by his brothers. Look what it says, verse sixteen. He was grieved that his brothers thought he would punish them. Is in verse sixteen it says Joseph wept. When he heard their message. From when they came into Egypt until, you know, the time when his father, they had about 20 years that had passed. 
I'm left with the impression here that during that 20 years, Joseph figured, hey, we're good. You know, we're good. There's no problem here. And it seems for that 20 years, the brothers were always at least in the back of their mind thinking, oh, dude, he's going to let us have it. Joseph is just going to come down on us, you know. Unfortunately, sometimes we think that way because we, we think that they will act as we would act. We hate to have to admit that. But Joseph, it says, Joseph wept when he heard their message. But they went and they went to Joseph, admitted their wrong, they asked for forgiveness. Let me tell you, if you have wronged someone, please don't wait 20 years To go ask for forgiveness. Don't wait 20 years. If you've wronged someone, you know, Scripture is pretty clear. You know, Jesus said, if if you're at the altar and you're giving, again, again, their their worship was really centered around this whole idea of giving. And and so he says, if you're at the altar with your offering and there you remember that your brother has something against you, go, leave it there at the altar. Go, get this straightened out. Why? Because it was more important. He says, that is important to get this done. And then come back, it says, and make your, your, your offering at the altar. That's the importance that, that Jesus puts on, on this whole thing. So don't wait 20 years. It seems, you know, they didn't quite trust Joseph, so they come before him, bow down, offer themselves to him as slaves to serve him. It had to break Joseph's heart. Pick up with me again, verse 19. It says, but Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, as, as I'm looking at these verses and, I, and I'm seeing you know, what I see here, you know, Joseph, he was not going to step ahead of God. He would not assume God's role. Am I in the place of God, he says? We need to remember, don't step into God's place. Don't step into God's place. And when we look for retaliation or we look, you know, to get back or to get even, that's what we're doing. We're stepping into God's place because what does God say? You know, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Not yours, his. Don't step into God's place. Why could Joseph do this? As, as I'm looking at this and I'm reading this, it just seems to me that Joseph gave up, gave, he gave up his right to be mad. You see, what he did is he yielded that right to God. He yielded that right to the providence of God. He, he, he brings it and he just gives it, you know, and it's, it's given to God and he doesn't try to take it back. He knew there was... He knew there was never a time when God was unaware of him. He knew that God could and had directed all of his steps, even the ones that hurt. Even those steps that were hard and painful, and he knew God directed them. He knew he was never out of God's sight. As I was reading this, I thought, boy, he knew the reality of Psalm 139 before it was even written. Psalm 139 says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. 
You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This extraordinary knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I am unable to reach it. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon and settle at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light, will, uh, light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. You can trust that there is absolutely nothing haphazard about the life of God's people. There is nothing haphazard about the life of God's people, about those who trust and want to follow God. Joseph would not step into God's place. He would not, he would not assume God's role. He trusted God to be God. And he recognized God's hand and how God had used that evil to bring about good results. Notice what he says. The survival of many people. Joseph wasn't just thinking about Joseph. He had a much broader perspective than that. He said, to bring about the survival of many people. Joseph was sold into slavery by his own brothers. And as he was sold into slavery, and he was brought to Egypt, and he was sold. And as he was sold into Potiphar's house, and he served there, and he served well. And you know, Potiphar trusted him with everything. Well, then Potiphar's wife accuses him, and he gets accused of assaulting Potiphar's wife, his master's wife, even though he was innocent. And he got accused of it. And Potiphar chose to believe his wife over Joseph, and Joseph gets tossed back in jail. And he's in jail. And while he's in jail again, then, well, then a couple of Pharaoh's guys come in, a cupbearer and, uh, and, uh, and the chief baker. And they have dreams. Well, Joseph interprets their dreams for him and tells them. Well, he tells the, the cupbearer because he knew it was happening to the baker. The baker was going to be toast. Did you get that? Anyway. The, uh, uh, so anyway, he, uh, he tells the, the cupbearer, hey, buddy, remember me. You know, dude, so now you know it's a paraphrase. Hey, dude, remember me when you get to Pharaoh. Tell him about me. Huh? Huh? A couple of years go by. Nothing, nothing. Bupkis, is that a word? Anyway, you know, nothing. He gets nothing. And he's forgotten about for years. But Joseph saw how God used his difficulties to bless others. The survival of many people. He was so focused on God that he could see how God used his circumstances to help others. 
sometimes when we get into struggles, it's hard not to be focused on me and my struggles. It is. It just really is. If it's a if it's a physical if it's you know physical pain and struggle, man, sometimes really I mean some people have all they can do to get through the day. Jenny and I had dinner last night with some friends and uh, uh, the the man, uh, husband and wife, and uh, the man has uh, MS and he's in a he's in a motorized wheelchair now and he can't hardly move and the inactivity is ravaging his body I mean it is it's you know it's just tough I don't the only time he said anything about himself last night was when we asked You know, he's a, he and his wife are Christians, and uh, they serve at their church. And he was telling me uh, he, he's in a he's in a motorized wheelchair. He can't get out of that thing, you know, to get in a pew or do anything else. And when we were talking last night, and he was, we were just talking about different things, and he was talking about um, how he serves at his church, and he serves. Well, he did. It's unfortunate that lately it's gotten worse and he's not been able to do much, not even get there too many times. But he was talking about, you know, just when he was on their sound committee and he did, he he mentioned that in passing as he was telling us about something else and the different things he did. You see, and I thought, man, ah. Would I do that or would I be so wrapped up in just getting through the day that I wouldn't be able to do anything else? It's hard. It's hard when afflictions come that we would be thinking of, you know, the survival of many people. God uses your example. God uses what you go through and what you face in the lives of other people. Sometimes you will never know it. But your walk with God, you know, radiates out there. And Joseph tells him, verse 20, you planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. God can use your situation to help others. He can use your situation to help others come to know him. You know, come to into a relationship with him. To come to realize what a great God he is. And instead of exacting revenge here, Joseph addresses their fears. Did you notice that? He addresses their fears. And notice how he does it. He does it with comfort and peace. He comforts them. Verse 21, therefore, don't be afraid. Oh, man, do we need to hear that? Do we need to hear that when we're in the midst of struggle and when we're in the midst of, uh, of, of agony? Don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your little ones. They expected Joseph to exact revenge. And Joseph gives the total opposite here because he has his mind. He has Joseph's trust is in God. The brother's trust was not there yet. Joseph acts from his trust in God and says, don't be afraid. I will take care of you. 
Why? Because God has put me in this position. Why? For the survival of many, not for my own comfort, but for the survival of others. He has put me. I went through all of this stuff, Joseph said. So why? So that it could be here for this time and for this place. Don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your little ones. And he comforted them and, sp- and spoke kindly to them. That's what it says. And spoke kindly to them. Realize in every situation, you have the opportunity to make the situation worse or to bring the peace of Christ. You have that opportunity to make it worse or to bring the peace of Christ. You know, you you can look out for your own benefit, you know, or you can trust God and work to help others. You you, You can try to get your own ideas across or you operate according to God's command to love your neighbor as yourself you push for your way you know or you trust god you follow his ways you follow his lead you live by his standards you live in line with his grace you share his compassion for others who need to know him joseph here he extends cares to his brothers their families and even their little ones i just really like that phrase even their little one he comforted them when he could have accused them He cared for them when he could have evened the score. He spoke kindly to them when he could have berated them for their behavior, when he could have told them how they wronged him. He responded from a heart of a man who learned to trust the providence and sovereignty of God. He knew the reality of Romans 8.28, which wouldn't be written for another 1,500 years after his death, that we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Notice it says, the ultimate good, not necessarily, not necessarily the comfort of the moment. He doesn't say God will bring comfort into every moment. That's not what he says. It doesn't say God will make a a, a peaceful, easy way for you. That is not what it says. What it says is that we know all things work together. All things. Joseph said, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. We celebrated communion. Let me ask you. What did the Jews intend And the Jewish leaders intend from Christ's death on the cross. They intended to be rid of a problem. What did Pilate know was going to happen when he said, I don't find anything wrong with this man, but I'm handing him over to you. Do with him what you want. What did did Pilate, Pilate knew what was going to happen. He knew he was going to be crucified. That's why it says he went in and washed his hands as if that was going to absolve him from the guilt of, of what he did. They condemned an innocent man. What did God do? He used it for good. The salvation of the world. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That ultimate good, not the comfort of the moment. Joseph's focus and his trust is on the sovereignty and providence of God through all of his troubles. No matter what came along, 
You planned evil against me. God planned it for good. You planned evil against me. God planned it. for. This was not happenstance. This wasn't something that just happened to come along. This was, you know, God in his wisdom and foreknowledge, it knew exactly what Joseph's brothers would do to him. He knew exactly what was going to happen. Then God planned to use their sin against Joseph to bring about what it says there, the survival of many people. We don't want to be Joseph in the pit, betrayed by his brothers. We don't want to be Joseph being sold as a slave. We don't want to be Joseph when, when, when he is, when he is in, serving in Potiphar's house as a slave. We don't want to be Joseph when he's falsely accused. We don't want to be Joseph when he's thrown back in jail. We don't want to be Joseph when he's forgotten about in jail. We don't want to be Joseph when he stands before Pharaoh and says, what do these dreams mean? We want to be Joseph when he's in command. That's when we want to be Joseph. We want to be Joseph at the end, you know, when he's second in command, a man of prestige, a man of power, a man who is well cared for. But Joseph said, you intended all of this stuff for evil. God intended it for good. He wasn't just saying words. He is the man who lived through it. And through it all, he trusted the sovereignty and providence of God. Now, you know, the, the trust we're talking about today, it's certainly evidenced in Joseph, but it's much broader than that. Turn to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus comes right after, right after Genesis 50. Exodus chapter 1. It's on page 49 in the Pew Bible. This follows the events here that came right after Joseph. Um, Exodus chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. It says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each came with his family. Reuben, the inventor of a really good sandwich. Uh, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali. Gad and Asher. The total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. Ooh, uh, then, but it, the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. A new king who had not known Joseph came to power in Egypt. So you see, this is a while later. Verse 9, he said to the people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Let us deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. And if war breaks out, they may join our enemies, fight against us, and leave our country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites and oppressed them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses and supplied the cities for Pharaoh. As supplies to cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and in all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. So you see what's happening here is a number of years after Joseph died, those who came after him, part of the many who survived because of what Joseph went through, part of those whom Joseph went through, the survival of many that Joseph went through this struggle for, you know, and he lived out his trust in God. Now those survivors, those, some of those many there, they were slaves. Notice you know, with bitter, difficult labor and brick and mortar and all kinds of fieldwork. 
It says they were treated ruthlessly, and all manner of hard labor was imposed on them. The Israelites continued to increase in number. You know, the, the Egyptians get nervous about a possible revolt. Pharaoh commands, you know, the Israelite midwives to kill all the males. This is what comes, you know, in the following verses, chapters in Exodus. The Pharaoh commands the Israelite midwives to kill all of the male babies who are born. Uh, the midwives very wisely disobeyed Pharaoh, and then, you know, they obeyed God's command not to murder a baby boy is born his mother keeps him hidden as long as she can puts him in a basket you know and he goes out a float on the river and pharaoh's daughter finds finds the baby names him moses and he is raised in pharaoh's house as his readers digest condensed version here and moses knows he's of jewish descent he sees another jew being uh, being mistreated and he kills an egyptian and he takes off and he flees you know and and, and many years later uh, god taps him on the shoulder sends him back to egypt this time to lead the Israelites out of slavery. This all, took, this all took place hundreds of years after the events of Genesis 50. During that time, several generations, thousands of people died knowing nothing but a life of ruthless slavery. They were captives all their lives. In the providence of God... He raised up Joseph and God raised up Moses. And I will also tell you that in the sovereignty and providence of God, thousands died, lived and died, knowing nothing but slavery and ruthless treatment. The sovereignty of God is not determined by our situation. It's not determined, you know, simply because things are going well for us. It's determined by the reality that God is sovereign. And he preserves and controls everything that's happened. That's the providence of God. He preserves and controls everything that happens. God remains sovereign even when we have tough times. We looked at Psalm 139. All my days were written in your book. All my days were planned before a single one of them came to be. We looked at Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. A verse that's familiar to us and you've probably heard it and used it before. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your welfare and not for disaster. To give you hope in the future. And we say, Whoa! He said that to people who were slaves. He said that to people who were, who were uh, captive, who were taken away, who were conquered people. This is who he's talking to. He's encouraging them. Dudes, you know, this, is not, this isn't it. You know, I got plans for you. That was part of the plan he had there. Isaiah 43. I will be with you when you pass through the waters and when you pass through the rivers. They will not overwhelm you. You will not be scorched when you walk through the fire, and the flames will not burn you. Hebrews 13, he says, He himself said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And what we've been looking at, you planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. We may not see the reasons for the struggles that we're in the midst of. We may not even see the reason during our lifetime. But the sovereignty and providence of God through all circumstances is what we can trust. 
Trust in that sovereignty and providence of God, no matter what you're facing. I read a story last week about someone who's been doing just that. I want to share part of the article with you. It's an article I read by Angela Davis. Uh, It's published uh, last week uh, in the the Gospel Coalition. Gospel Coalition has some uh, very good articles and information if you ever want to look that up. Um, But it's a story about, about this lady. This is what it said. The name is Jane Marzuski. It may not ring a bell, but her stage name is Nightbird. It has become famous overnight. The 30-year-old from Zanesville, Ohio, which I thought was pretty cool, 30-year-old from Zanesville, Ohio, appeared on the 16th season of America's Got Talent in June, performing her original song, It's Okay. The irony, though, is Nightbird's life is anything but okay. In 2017, Nightbird first received the diagnosis we all dread, cancer. She learned she likely had six months to live, and she began her battle with stage 3 breast cancer. In 2018, she was declared cancer-free, but her celebration was short-lived. Just a few months later, she began a second battle with cancer, facing single-digit chances of survival. If fate hadn't already seemed to be against her, the battle became even all the more lonely when her husband of five years left her. She went on alone, winning the second battle in July of 2020. On June 8th, Nightbird Nightbird auditioned for America's Got Talent, captivating the audience and judges. After the song, she revealed her cancer was back, and now in her liver, spine, and lungs. Why is this unlikely voice the one we need to hear right now? In her words, Nightbird gives the answer. I am so much more than the bad things that happened to me. What is her hope despite her circumstances? How can she declare it's okay when clearly it isn't? America is captivated because hope and joy are not natural responses when life falls apart. So where does Nightbird's hope come from? Where does it originate? From a mysterious place that the NBC talent show is unlikely to explore. God. In another interview, Nightbird said, I believe that God can heal in one instant. I also believe that no good thing does he withhold. So there was something God was growing in the field that is me. And if God had pulled up all of the hardships too, it would have also pulled up all these things, all these miracles he did in my spirit. Even her stage name communicates hope. She chose it because she dreamed about birds singing in the darkness for three straight nights. I want to be that way even when I am in the middle of a dark time and there are no signs that it will end. She said, I want to be the bird that sings in anticipation of the good things that I trust are coming. Nightbird does not sugarcoat her suffering. In one blog post, she poetically details how she has wrestled with God through all of this trial. I remind myself that I am praying to the God who led the Israel, who let the Israelites stay lost for decades. They begged to arrive in the promised land, but instead he let them wander, answering prayers they didn't pray. For 40 years, their shoes didn't wear out. Fire lit their path every night. Every morning, he sent them mercy bread from heaven. I looked hard for answers to the prayers that I didn't pray. In another post, she wrote, When it comes to pain, God isn't often in the business of taking it away. Instead, he adds to it. He is more a giver than a taker. He doesn't take away my darkness. He adds light. 
He doesn't spare me of thirst. He brings water. He doesn't cure my loneliness. He comes near. So why do we believe that when we are in pain, it must mean that God is far? In her pain, Nightbird has hope. Why? Because that's when God is nearest. She said, I am still reeling, drenched in sorrow. I am still begging, bargaining, demanding, disappearing. And I guess that means that I have all the more reason to say thank you because God is drawing near to me. Again, again, again. No matter how many times he is sent away. And then the author writes, God, is, God the Son took on flesh and entered into this sin-ravaged, cancer-stricken world to deliver us from it. Jesus went willingly to the cross and experienced the suffering our sins deserved in order to give us all he merited with his perfect life. God met us there. That is the hope Nightbird communicates to the world. It is a hope that the world, though captivated, is, is unable to attain by itself. It's the hope of the gospel that allows us not to just endure, but to rejoice in the midst of suffering. America is fascinated with Nightbird not because her story is compelling, but because she seems to possess something elusive that we all want, or rather someone. The God who knows our pain, meets us in our pain, and redeems our pain. With this God, we too can have a hope that allows us to sing along with Nightbird the unlikeliness of, re of refrains in a world of sickness and death. It's okay. Don't give up. Don't give in to sin. Don't give in to despair. Trust. Live with trust in the sovereignty and providence of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your sovereignty. That you are God even at those times in which we ignore it. Even in those times in which we may not feel it, even in those times in which we struggle, you are God. You never leave us alone, and I thank you for that. Nothing that's come into my life or in the lives of anyone here is a surprise to you. You are well aware of it. And you are well aware of how to guide us through it. You are well aware of how to strengthen us in it. You are well aware of how to use it for glory and honor. And to strengthen your people. And for the good of many. So, Father, as we face uncertainty, we can do it with the certainty that you are God. And that you are sustaining and guiding the lives of your people. Father, encourage us with the reality of your presence, of your being, of your qualities and who you are. And help us to live for the glory of Christ. And it's in his name we pray.